Hello and welcome to the fourth season of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we find any parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm filmmaker and hellhound groomer, Giles Goff. And I'm test engineer and evil nanny, Phil Coleman. And for the second episode of our mini-season looking at horror, we'll be looking at The Omen. Richard Donner's 1976 end times horror about the rise of the son of the devil. We'll be looking at the origins of the biblical roots of the Antichrist and the representation of Satanists in fiction and wider media in general. We'll be looking at these things with a degree of scepticism. It's also worth noting that although we won't be talking about it in any level of detail, we'll be making some brief references to false accusations of child abuse. So if any of those issues are difficult for you, you can either skip this episode completely or I'll let you know which bits to skip in the episode description. So, Phil, The Omen, what did you think of this film, man? I don't know how I hadn't properly seen this film before I watched it for the podcast. I, like, I feel like I had seen it mm. like years ago, but um, it's very clear that I didn't. I, I think the, other, the thing that I'd seen the most is I'd seen the scene where um, the, the, the first nanny hangs herself. Yeah. Spoiler alert, by the way, but it happens like <laughs> you know 20 minutes into the film. Um, but yeah, um, I thought it was brilliant. I thought the tension was the thing that got me the most. It was just so so beautifully done. Gregory mm-hmm. Peck is just is you, you can see why he's gone down in the annals of history as like a, a you know a classic classic actor. Like he's just brilliant in that film. See, I rewatched this for the first time in about 25 years and um it's not a good film, is it? it I mean I, I know it was the 70s, but still, I you mean, know. I, do you know it's obviously a bit ropey in some places, like, <laughs> like, 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 for example, some of the the sort of the horror elements, the prosthetics and stuff, for example, were like, mm-hmm. come on, mate, like, like, that's not how an eye melts. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but like, but, but one thing I think it did very well. I think the cinematography is actually very, very good in that film. Oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah, because right. I really like the cinematography. Because one thing that I, I saw in that was the fact that it uses a lot of like handheld camera, which right, okay. did, doesn't feel. It feels like more of a modern sort of trope to use more handheld cameras. Yeah, or handheld camera work is probably the best term. Um, which again, and, and that could be me just looking at it from a, a younger person's perspective. But um, just to see that in there, plus as well, I I don't think either of us can deny the fact that the soundtrack is one of the best parts of the film. Christos, Dominus, <laughs> Sanctus, Dominus. <laughs> It's, oh no! It was so good. It won an Oscar, didn't it? it won an Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was. I, th- I thought the um, I thought the soundtrack was belting. Awesome. Let's get into it with <gasps> Phil's facts. So we'll get the obvious out of the way first. The Omen is a 1976 supernatural horror film directed by Richard Donner and written by David Seltzer. The hmm. film follows the plot of Damien Thorne, a young child replaced at birth by his father, unbeknownst to his wife, after their biological child dies shortly after birth. As a series of mysterious events and violent deaths occur around the family and Damien enters childhood, they come to learn that he is in fact the prophesied Antichrist, which, if I may say, uh, if he's the Antichrist and Jesus was Christ, then that would mean that he'd be the opposite of Jesus, the reverse of which would be sausage. I just want you to mull that one over. <laughs> oh, Do you know yeah, what? Yeah. I, I, I want to say I'm sorry. <laughs> I really do, but I enjoyed it too much. <laughs> um, anyway, we'll get on with the facts. Harvey Stevens, as Damien, was largely chosen for this role from the way that he attacked Richard Donner during the auditions. <laughs> so Donner asked all the little boys to come at him, in inverted commas, as if they were attacking Catherine Thorne during the church wedding scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stevens screamed and clawed at Donner's face and kicked him in the groin during his act. <laughs> Donner whipped the kid off him, ordered the kid's blonde hair dyed black, and cast him as Damien there and then. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, you would, wouldn't you? Do you know what I mean? Like, if he's... He's like, that kid actually might be the Antichrist, so we better cast, <laughs> we better cast him now. Or, or I'm going to be damned. <laughs> yeah. Either way, I'll be damned. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, when the fishbowl falls to the ground... Dead sardines were actually painted orange and were used in place of actual goldfish. Of course they were. Of course they were. Be- uh, since director Richard Donner refused to kill goldfish for the sake of making a movie, which uh, 
yeah, okay. Quite right. Do you know what? The more that you look at this film, the more of it you can think, well, I'm not sure if he is the son of the devil or you guys just don't know how to do a risk assessment, you know? <laughs> like, the moment the ambassador's wife puts the goldfish bowl on the balcony, just the edge, she could have put it on the floor. She could have put it on the floor. But no, she puts a fish bowl on the edge of the balcony like... I just, I don't think you've had the health and safety training. Do you know what? And then, and then goes up a, a step ladder <laughs> on the balcony, this very low balcony, let's mm-hmm. let's not forget, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And like, is he the son of the devil or are you just a dumbass? It's, you know? <laughs> signs point to dumbass though, don't they? Yeah. Also as well, putting the fish, the goldfish bowl on the banister. Do you know what I mean? Like, come on, man. Uh, maybe it was the 70s and health and safety just wasn't invented yet. Also... <laughs> Child safeguarding. A woman turns up at your house and says, Hi, I'm your son's new nanny. Oh, but I need to spend some time with him alone without you there. Right. Mm, thank and you, you for coming. The bit, Goodbye. The, the bit, that person as well, that weird nanny, the way mm-hmm. that she just kind of goes, Okay, can I see the child now? And you're just like, Okay, that's a bit demanding. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, step off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, here are my references. Like, dude, if you have to hand the references to somebody in a piece of paper, rather than just... It just... it, it just with my, with my teacher hat on, it bothered me. There was quite a lot about that that had to have you believe that this was normal practice, or otherwise yeah. you'd be like, why is this happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. very strange. It was very strange. So, one of Richard Donner's first requests to screenwriter David Seltzer was to remove all suggestions of the supernatural, such as cloven hoof demons and witches' mm-hmm. covens. The golden rule was that nothing was allowed in the script that couldn't happen in real life. Mm-hmm. The idea was that there should be some degree of doubt over whether or not Thorne was deranged. I came up across this fact as well, that mm. Dick Donner wanted to make it more ambiguous as to whether Damien was the Antichrist or not. And, like, I really wish we could see that film, you know? Because... Yeah. Because uh, to, to an extent, yeah, like it's much more interesting if maybe he's the Antichrist or maybe he's just a kid. Even if he's the, even if he's the, he is the Antichrist. Even if he is the son of the devil, that doesn't strictly make you a bad person. Having a dad who's a bit rubbish does not inherently make you a bad person. If it does, I am screwed. You know, <laughs> um, and like obviously Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman basically took that as the starting point for Good Omens, didn't they? You know, yeah, what if much. the Antichrist had just had like a normal upbringing? And the, yeah. I remember in the in the book on the flip side where there's the evil nannies and the hellhounds, and this is just just this cute kid who just wants to play on his trike. You know, he's just a normal, yeah. he's just, just a normal little boy. Just getting you know? on with it. Just wants a sun lolly and a, and a nap. Do you know what I mean? Like. This. Yeah. To be honest, I wouldn't mind a sun lolly and a nap Absolutely. myself, actually. Oh, so, I know, right? Yeah, that'd be really good. Because Harvey Stevens was so young, Richard Donner found that the best mm-hmm. way to direct him was to provoke genuine reactions before the camera. For example, when Damon is angry at being taken to church, Donner got his peeved facial expression by shouting to Stevens off camera. And I'm not entirely sure if I agree with this, but again, it was the 70s. What are you looking at, you little yep. bugger? I'll clobber you. <laughs> Come on, Dick. Were you the nicest sort of guy? Do you know what? I think we Dick Donner actually was pretty nice by all accounts. I think he was well. Actually, he was, he was pretty it, lovely. You know? if, you, if if you think about sort of the uh, the situation, things were just in general. Considering then. some of the some of the directors we're going to talk about this season, I think Dick Donner was kind of kind of all right. That's disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Also, uh, he made Superman, so you know, lifetime pass. Uh, uh, yeah, you can't really. Be you know, that and he, and then he made the Goonies, so you know, he could have killed a few kids in the process. We'd forgive him, you know. I, I just, just, <laughs> just going to put it out there that I don't, I don't fully endorse or agree with everything that Giles says. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, um, so it was Richard Donner's intention to film and edit the scene where Jennings is decapitated, spoiler alert, Mm -hmm. but come on, um, in such a way that the audience, having closed their eyes at the beginning of the scene, would open them only to see the head still floating in the air, which is minging. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many of these these shots where it's like, ah, ah, it's like, ah, ah. Ah, but from a high angle. Ah, but from a low angle. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, yeah. It's, do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, you know? Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. Like the, like um, when Profe- when um, Patrick Troughton's um, priest dies and the, the spire comes out, the spire, ah, ah, ah. I know, it's like, dude, it's, just it's move like, out of the ah, way. 
ah, ah, you know, just all these different angles. <laughs> I tell you what, though, I, I think Patrick Troughton was probably my favourite part of the film. <clears throat> I thought he was great. Like, I just, just, it was just the right amount of, like, absolutely um, hammy. Do you know what I mean? I just yeah. loved it. It was great. Do, do you know what, Phil? I just want you to know that on the spectrum of being a Christian, the Patrick Troughton's Jesuit priest of, hello, nice to meet you, drink the blood of Christ and eat his body and then you'll be saved from damnation. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That is one of the options. <laughs> Okay, so, so I've I've always got that in my back pocket, you know. I could just, I just go just, full on scary. I just look, like, imagine you just kicking down someone's door and just being like, "Bang! Eat the blood of Christ now. <laughs> Drink his blood." <laughs> just like, like that is what people think we're like, and you must accept Christ as your savior. Or you're going to die. You know, that's that's what people think we're like. Just just scary, crazy, mad eyes the whole time. You know. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, if if, I, if I've learned anything about Christianity, mm-hmm. is there is not quite as stoic and scary as people put it out to be we exist on a spectrum that's probably the best way i'd put it you know i have two more facts (laughs) gregory peck and richard donner had one argument during the production peck wanted to angrily smash things during the scene where robert finds out that his wife has died and donner disagreed he wanted to cut in on thorne well after the discovery not in the moment according to donner he and peck argued about the scene for an entire day before peck told him you're wrong i'm right but you're the director, and therefore I have to do it your way. <laughs> the reason I've included this is because that's something you've said to me before on our sets. Where it's like, <laughs> we're going to have an argument, and you're going to win. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. It, I stole that line from Warren Beatty. Um, it was one of the ways he he approached um, he approached the the director for Bonnie and Clyde. You know, because mm. he was producing Bonnie and Clyde. Like, like, look. Every night we're going to have an argument and you're going to win because you're the director, but we're still going to have the argument. I'm still going to say what and what needs to be said. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, I and, included uh, that I, one specifically because of that. <laughs> yeah. It just reminded and me I like that because, because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to be like, yeah, no, I see all your points, Phil, but um, Who's who's got the director's name tag? Oh, it's me. So let's just let's just do it that way. It's all right. Know? Next next time next time I'm directing a film and you're on it, I'm gonna pull that one right out of the bag on you. <laughs> we'll be like you'll be like, oh yeah, but I've got the I've got the director's hat, haven't I? And like, oh yeah, but I've I've got the director's chair, and it's gonna it's be like, a weird system. Of like no, chair beats hat. I also I also have the director's chair. <laughs> I also have a director's chair, and I'm, that's your am, fault. I'm regretting <laughs> buying you the, that that director's chair now. Now that I think about it. Oh no, don't! It gives me so it it it, it gives me so much validation. Good. I am so glad. <laughs> I've got one more. David Warner kept his severed head for years <laughs> until his divorce. <laughs> when his ex-wife obtained custody of it. There's just no... There's no other, there's no other plane of reality where that makes sense. It's amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for those, Phil. They were so much fun. Hi, everyone. I'm Louisa Jane Smith, host of the RE Podcast winner of the most boring podcast in the world. I'm popping in just to tell you that God in Film, a really blooming brilliant podcast, now has a Patreon page. Just go to www.patreon.com forward slash God in Film podcast to support the show. There you can find episode notes for every episode and the special God in Music podcast where Giles, Phil and Sefa go through the top 10 mainstream songs with a God connection. Here's a clip. I've, I've got one last thing. It's just something that just popped into my head. Why didn't we call this the Godcast? Oh. That already exists, does it? Or does it already yeah. exist? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, okay, so uh, we need to take him out. <laughs> <laughs> because God is on your side? Uh, I'd, I'd like to think I've earned a couple of brownie points. Somewhere, so. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Our movements must be long range and decisive. <laughs> we must. I, I, I'm actually not going to kill anyone. Um, I just really want to put that in plain English. Oh, yeah. Nudge, nudge. Wink, wink. Look, Phil's I, not going to kill anyone, yeah, I here, guys. I'm from Warrington, all right, but it's not my own personality. <laughs> Out of all the podcasts in the whole world that aren't mine, these two are probably my favourite, combining faith, films, and music. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, your money will go towards the running cost of the show and Giles and Phil will be eternally grateful. And if you can't support them financially, that's okay too. It's a really tough time for a lot of you out there right now, so you can just help out by telling someone about the show or liking and sharing the show on social media. For our guest this week, we have an incredibly wise theologian. We last heard from him in season one in our Dogma episode. I'll let him introduce himself. Hello, my name's Adrian. I am English, but I live in Hungary. I've lived here for 30 years and I'm now retired, but I've been a language teacher and a theology teacher. Adrian, it's such a joy to have you back on the podcast again. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. So let's get straight into it. Obviously, the uh, the film Omen centres around the character of the Antichrist. What is the first yes. reference to the Antichrist? Well, the I think the word Antichrist only occurs four times in the Bible, and it's all in the letters of John. So it's 1 John, chapter 2 and chapter 4, and 2 John. And it's very vague, really. It just says... Um, you have heard Antichrist is coming and there are now many Antichrists in the world. And who is the Antichrist? The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So it's, it's just very vague, really. So it, um, it sounds like that refers less to one specific person and more like a, a label to attach to different people. It doesn't seem to refer to one specific person. It seems to refer almost to, to a kind of spirit or a kind of phenomenon that is is present. And it's just simply the people who, who are against or who oppose Jesus Christ. I see. Okay. So people who are, are not, not just non-believers, but they are actively against Christianity. It seems to be like that, yes. Is that how early, yeah. early Christians would have seen it? Well, um, interestingly enough, the early church fathers uh, did, at least from about the second century, did seem to postulate there would be... Uh, a certain figure in the end times who would be it one specific antichrist which is similar to a lot of the beliefs of today what are the beliefs of today in terms of antichrist <laughs> well there are a lot of different theories mm -hmm. uh, the the most popular one among evangelical christians yeah is that there there will be a probably a political maybe a religious leader who will be very influential maybe take over the world governments and and will seem to be a good guy at the beginning, but then he will he will certainly turn against Christians and, according to a certain theory, turn against the Jews as well and persecute Jews and Christians. And uh, for a period of three and a half years, uh, just before the end times, before the end of the world. So, I'd say this is this is a a belief that is kind of propagated predominantly in in evangelical circles, isn't it? And yes. It, would you say there's a, a particular, this sounds terrible, but it, is, there, is there a bit of a harm, do you think, to, to overemphasizing this? Well, um, it can, I think it can make people feel very negative. Mm. Uh, people feel afraid of, of what is coming and then people are always trying to spot, you know, the signs of the times, the political situation, and it can, can panic people. Also, of course, people have been predicting a specific date for the end of the world. Well, to be honest, ever since the second century. But <laughs> specifically, I think nowadays, since about the 1830s, it's been like end of the world craziness ever since, ever since then. And so far, everybody's been wrong, of course. Um, but other Christian streams see more that Christianity will be triumphant mm -hmm. and will, you know, will overcome evil. And that seems to give people a much more positive outlook and a much more incentive to evangelise. Whereas, you know, waiting for the Antichrist, it could just be, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. We, we just need to just need to wait for the end sort of thing. So it can make people passive. Yeah. What do, what do you think? What do you believe on the issue? Well, I don't actually hold the most popular theory, which is uh, called dispensationalism. OK. Which actually has, has only been around since 1830. Tell us about that. Um, it's a theory that um, that there will be a rapture of the church, so the church will be removed from the world mm -hmm. seven years before the, the return of Christ. So the dead Christians will be resurrected, um, living Christians will just be changed and then will disappear. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be a period of three and a half years, which is relatively calm, then the, the Antichrist arises for the final three and a half years and will persecute the Jews and the Christians. And there'll be a focus on Jerusalem, uh, you know, what's happening with the Jews. And then when the, the you know, the things get so bad that there's going to be possibly the, you know, 
mankind's going to destroy himself, then Jesus will return. There'll be a th then a thousand year, a thousand year uh, kingdom mm. when Jesus reigns on the earth. That's called dispensationalism. Right. They just in a, a nutshell. The the view I hold is called amillennialism, which is uh, that the millennium spoken of in Revelation is actually the period of the church age. So it's not something in the future. Uh, and so when Jesus comes back, everything will happen at once. The dead will be raised and there'll be the last judgment and then we'll just go into eternity. So that, has, that was the view of the church from about the fourth century through till the 17th century. So it's, it is actually the most most well-known theory that the that Christians have held. So amil see if I get this right. Amillennialism is, is more of a condensed timeline, whereas the dispensationism is more over an extended yes. period of time am i reading that right yes and there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of different stages to it mm -hmm. and, and uh, so time charts of what's going to happen now and what signs and the, it's much more complicated i think yeah, yeah. if you were uh, if you were giving advice to a, to a young christian who's sort of somebody who's just become a christian and they're they're sort of finding out about this stuff and this this element of theology is there any kind of right. guiding principles you'd you'd give them I say don't be too obsessive about the about the the the, the last days because you, you, people can get really into it and and just lose focus. Mm. I'd say you know focus on growing in Christ and and you know sort of um, preaching the gospel and and you know living the Christian life, being a um, <clears throat> uh, an example for Christ in the world. And uh, you can you know look at the different theories, but don't get too obsessed with any one of them because. Of course, nobody st still nobody actually knows which is the correct one. So, you know, don't get too focused. On I that. mean, Jesus himself says that no man will know the day or the hour. Am I reading that right? Yes, that's in Matthew 24. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so the the idea is that even Jesus isn't entirely certain on when the, the end times is. Yeah. The way I see Matthew 24 is that when he's talking about all the signs, mm -hmm. which people talk about, like earthquakes and wars and all that kind of thing, that's actually, he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem yeah. and the destruction of the temple in, in 70 AD. And then he goes on to say, but the actual return, you know, at the end of the age, uh, no one knows. Yeah. No one can know. So, yeah. So so nobody really knows. It's, uh, as I say, everyone tries to calculate the uh, the date, but it's uh, never worked so far. <laughs> Fun bit of guesswork, but don't put too much stock in it then, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Just basically, I think, be ready. Mm -hmm. You know, the be ready. Um, be at work, you know, the... Be doing what Jesus said, preaching the gospel and living your Christian life um, and just be ready for any time that it could happen. But don't get obsessed with it. It may not happen in our lifetime. It may just be maybe another hundred years. Yeah, we, we don't 100 know. years, thousand years. Nobody's no knows for sure. Adrian, right. thank you so yeah. much for that. I really appreciated uh, you taking me through okay. some of those terms and just kind of breaking it down for me. And I'm sure our listeners okay. will appreciate it as well. Thank you very much. So, Phil, that was Adrian. What do you think? As with all of our guests, just a good to have somebody who's able to give that kind of insight, you know, mm. like just that little bit of professional insight that I wouldn't have had, basically, yeah. especially with him being a theologian as well. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. It's good to have him back as well, I've got to say. Mm. Yeah, nice, uh, since season one, can't believe we're on four, season four now and we've got a season one guest back, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, two years ago, man. Um, two years, bloody hell. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's really good. He's really comprehensive, really knows his onions, you know? Oh, we do. He knows his shallots, he does. <laughs> now it's time for... <gasps> Finding the Faith in the Film. I've got to do it different every time because I, I can't let it not be fresh. Is that the is that the scary like horror inflected version? Is it? Yeah, it's just what I came up with on top of my head. I'm not I'm not going <clears> to <throat> say it's perfect. It was mm -hmm. it, I should have been like da ba 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 something like that, you know. But just, I like it. I like it. It works. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to talk a fair bit about the Book of Revelation, which, as we've previously discussed, is mental. Revelation. <laughs> That's, that's the best way I can put it. Yeah, you, you're spitting straight facts there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Revelation is a, is a genre of writing that is is very distinct to sort of um, Jewish uh, writers, Hebrew writers of this time. Um, it, we see it in like books of uh, Ezekiel and, and some of the others I can't remember off the top of my head. And, um, and it's this thing about a prophet sees a vision and then transcribes mm. that vision for us you know it's a very distinct genre it it's very difficult for western readers to to get their head around so 
Let's talk about uh, the easy stuff. First of all, that word Megiddo, did that jump out at you at all? I'm going to be honest, actually, I think I might have missed that. Okay, so Megiddo was a, a fortification, like basically a small town uh, that kind of dominated the plain of Jezreel. It, it name the name literally means place of crowds. There's been lots of different sort of settlements over over the time, and it often gets linked with the word ha. So ha is a shortened version of harah, so to loom up or a mountain, so like a mountain range, a mountain range of hills. So right. we got ha Megiddo. That sound like anything to you? Harmageddon. I feel like this should be obvious, and it's not. <laughs> You're gonna kick yourself, you know. Harmageddon. So Harmageddon, no, the transliteration into Greek is Armageddon. Of course, it is. Like you know, when you hear something, it just seems so blindingly, blitheringly obvious when you hear it, and you just think, great. <laughs> <laughs> so there's references in Revelation to uh, some kind of last battle, like kings coming together and there being a, a battle at, at Hamagido. And so people aren't sure whether it's like a series of things leading up to it or just an individual battle or something. But mm. Hamagido is where we get Armageddon. You with right. me? Yes, I get yeah. that. I read the book of the Omen. I thought the book came first and then the film, but it turned out like the... It was a novelization of the film, and the oh, right. all the all the daggers were meant to be like the, uh, the 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 daggers of Megiddo, I think something like that. It's amazing um, how much context you get when you read the book version, yeah. Because you know, there's there's so there's so much less sort of time to really explain all that in a film. Yeah, I think it's always good to read the novelization. The context, the context is for kings, right? Context <laughs> is for kings. Love that phrase. Yes, yeah. me too, man. Me too. Yeah. So then we come on to the Antichrist, and you know we've talked about this in the past that the Antichrist, obviously the idea of like a, a popular figure who sort of like comes to comes to power, uh, and basically is you know a bit evil. The sausage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And um, I feel like we've kind of said, especially with Adrian's interview, I feel like we've kind of said everything that needs to be said about about the Antichrist. People tend to, if you hate somebody and can, you think they're terrible, they tend to get labelled as being the Antichrist. We've talked about this in the past mm. that it could, you know, some people think it's Joe Biden is the Antichrist right now. We all could have could have made a good argument for it being Trump and. Before that, you'd go back and you'd say, well, maybe Hitler was the Antichrist. And then if you go even further back, maybe it's the Pope or maybe it's Henry VIII. And all yeah, and it's just... I, feel, I feel like it's sort of a matter of perspective in a lot of ways, really, you know? like, And also the world's not ended, as far as we're aware. So unless we're in a simulation, which, criminy, I hope not. But Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> if, if, some, if some guy comes up to me in a big coat with sunglasses and offers me a red or a blue pill... I'm just going to be like, look, mate, I've got to go work tomorrow. Like, <laughs> I've, got, I've got stuff on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, if you if you do, tell him Giles says hi, because as we've established, Lawrence Fishburne is now my dad. And, well, uh, yeah, no, that's that's, yeah. that's 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 just biological fact. I, re, I recast the role. Uh, we chose Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> he was the only person that nailed the part. He just... He loves coats. Yeah. I love coats. Let's be mates. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's a, a passion project of his, I believe. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, like I say, the Antichrist. We've talked about it, and and I think we can I think we'll move on because what I do want to talk about is is the mark of the beast. Oh, okay. I'm interested in this. So the obviously in the in the in the uh, the film it's six six six, and the idea is that each six is meant to be. It's like a. a, a rejection of the of the trinity it's, it's like, like a, it's like an unholy it, trinity isn't it yeah it was like satan the antichrist and the the false prophet you know so that's it um i remember so that from, from the film <laughs> yeah so as best i can tell the idea of the antichrist having the mark of the beast as it's referred to on his person i think that's an invention of the film because in revelation itself the mark of the beast is actually uh, use a, it's a form of social control. Okay. So uh, I'll give you I'll give you I'll read out this bit from Revelations third chapter thirteen verse fifteen to eighteen. Just so we're clear, if we have we are never doing an episode that centers around Revelation again. Okay. You can go down <laughs> such a flipping rabbit hole on these things. Next time I say we're doing this film, you're gonna be like Giles. Does it have anything to do with Revelations? And if I'm like, no. Giles, okay, a bit. Giles. Then we're just not doing it. 
you know? Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, that will be an episode that's cut short by roughly 40 yeah. minutes. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and it'll be, yeah, it'll, it won't be a very interesting episode, to be honest. It'll just be facts, and then we'll be like, right, well, bye. So anyway, we've had, like, the first beast that's come out of the sea, and it's all the different heads and, and all that kind of nonsense like we talked about. Revelations 13, uh, verses 15 to 18, it's saying, The second beast was given power to breathe to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed it also forced all people great and small rich and poor free and slave to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name this calls for wisdom let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man that number is 666 off the top of your head, kind of sounds a bit mental, right? I was trying to follow that. Yeah. And yeah. it sounded like gibberish, if I'm honest yeah. with you. It just didn't yeah. sound, make any sense. No, fair enough. So, break this down bit by bit, all right? There's a lot of symbolic imagery used in Revelation. The number seven gets used a lot. Seven angels, seven lampstands, seven churches, all that sort of things. The number yeah. seven represents completeness or the complete universe so if there's a number seven being used it's like it was perfect it's right and it's good and it's proper and all the rest of it yeah yeah uh the number six i'll have to double check this but i think six was referred to as the human number and i i don't really know what that is other than obviously just representing mm. man now obviously the new testament and, and the bible as a whole is kind of written in a mixture of hebrew and greek and in the Greek alphabet, letters can also signify numbers. Oh, okay? yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and this is where it gets a little bit shaky for me because I'm not I'm not 100% on this, but the, the number 666 equates to beast, uh, the word beast, and it also equates to another name, the name, the name of a man, and that was Nero. As in, as in the, em the emperor. Yeah, as in Emperor Nero, not the coffee shop. You know. <laughs> I mean, it depends what drink you get from there, I suppose. But <laughs> so this is written around uh, ninety-five A.D. Many scholars believe it was written by the apostle John. We've talked in the past about how John was probably one of the youngest apostles. Mm. Uh, you know, the the apostle that that Jesus loved, as he calls himself. And yeah. we're like, yeah, maybe it's loved like a brother, you know. Seems a bit big-headed, but all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? and, and so it, it is 95 AD, so it's like 60 years after Jesus passed away, give or take. But John could still feasibly be alive. He could be a man in his 80s by this point. He's, mm. he's imprisoned on Patmos, which is like ancient world Alcatraz at this point when he's writing this stuff. And this letter of Revelation is like a circular letter. So he's writing it. It's going to get passed to one church and then passed to another church and another and another and another, right? Yeah. And right now, Christians are being persecuted like nobody's business. So, like, people are just looking for an excuse. So that's why he's talking in this coded language, you know, beasts rising up and beings with, like, seven heads and, and all the rest of it. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. It's a bit like saying, all right, look, if you got a bit of nous to you, figure out what I'm saying, okay? Yeah, he's like, you're picking up what I'm pouring out, and uh, yeah, maybe we can, maybe you can break me the crapping heck out of prison. Please. Yeah, he doesn't seem that fussed about prison because I think he's like. No, oh. to be fair, like I feel, I feel like if he was gonna, if he, I feel like if he was gonna send a coded message and it was about him getting out of prison, it'd probably be a little bit more literal, just like help me, the food's rubbish here or yeah. something like that. But obviously, um, uh, the Emperor Nero. Roman Caesars, as they're called, mm -hmm. you weren't just a command, you know, the commander. You weren't just the emperor. You were also a god, okay? Uh, and Interesting. Like, yeah, because Romans were like, hey, you did really well. Do you want to be a god? Uh, yes, please. Okay, awesome. <laughs> so you know, so like Caesar would al had already been made a god before he was like trying to get the dictator for life position because <laughs> you're made a god and that's lovely. Yay, thank you. But it's... It's completely ceremonial. People don't actually believe you're a you're a god. Yeah, it's more like a it's more like a title. 
Exactly. It's a way of saying you have allegiance to me over everything else. I am your God, you know? So Nero is punishing people and punishing Christians who are like, I think Yahweh is our God. I'm pretty sure Jesus is our God. He's like, no, it's me. So now I'm going to feed you to the lions, that sort of thing. Okay. <laughs> Bit extreme Nero, but yeah, yeah. All right. You do you. So it's interesting. Um, uh, it also forced all people, great, small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. Okay. So they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number on its name. Now, like I say, I became a Christian in a fairly fundamental pentecostal church so one of the things you're always on the lookout for was like what if they get to the point where instead of instead of having like contactless payments or whatever you'd have a microchip put in your hand so that you could you could just have it access you'd never lose it all the rest of it and it sounds ridiculous but like when body hackers came along the body modders you know those people who kind of like put things into their body so they can sort of sense like electromagnetic waves or anything like that i mean people put things like nfc tags under the skin and stuff so they can they can like scan things and turn on lights and stuff in the home which i think interesting because you could just do it with your phone Uh, yeah no i'm just thinking like having something like you know like uh, android pay or apple pay Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a similar kind of thing because everyone carries a phone in their pocket now. Yeah, but so, crucially, you could throw your phone into the canal if you wanted to, you know? Yeah, true. Um, it's not actually a part of my body as much as some people might disagree with that. Exactly. <laughs> so a lot of Christians feel quite twitchy about the idea, but also, obviously, you don't want to start putting microchips in people's bodies. You know, that's a that's a really dumb move, you know? Because what if the it, thing breaks down or people have an allergic reaction or anything like that? Also, why would you want to make it harder for people to sort of buy or sell you know or get food you know this is it yeah well there's probably a few reasons but it's for a different podcast i think yeah so another thing to focus is like the whole the hand or the head why why not pick one or the other and what i believe this is meant to be is it's like an inversion like an unholy version of what's called the shema which is a, a jewish prayer and it it was I think it still is, but it was sort of said at the uh, in morning and and at night. The way people, at least the way modern Jews do the shema, is they do it by sort of covering their hand over their eyes. It's a prayer that that they do. The Lord, the Lord is our God. This is a very rough version, but like difficultly in ancient Hebrew, the word is doesn't exist so it just says the lord our god the is was just taken for granted yeah you could yeah translated for modern times kind of thing. exactly yes yeah. so that's what a transliteration is the shema is referenced in deuteronomy it's this prayer that jews did at the beginning and at the end of the day the idea is it's on your your head and your hand because it's sort of blessing everything you think and everything you do, mm-hmm. it's it's in your actions and in your thoughts. When you started this bit, that's the first thing that came to my head. Yeah. So the mark of the beast, to summarise, probably not going to find it on anybody's head under their under their hairline. And I think it's probably one of the things that was is put there for the the first century Christians. You know, some people need a literal sort of like representation of something that they need a metaphor. Basically, they need a metaphor. Yeah, and of course you're talking in coded language, so that's that's going to be the kind of thing I'm talking about. It's going to make it a bit more difficult. <laughs> Next thing we're going to talk about is a bit more contentious, so you know, strap in. All right, let's go. We're going to talk about the idea of organized Satanism. Okay, oh, and this is this is going to be the, <laughs> this is going to be the first and last and only time that we're we're going to talk about this issue. Oh, okay, so films like The Omen and Rosemary's Baby posited the idea of a secret cabal of Satanists trying to bring about the end times. And in this film and in others like it, they're orchestrating things from behind the scenes and doing mm. terrible things to to make it happen. You know, in this film, they're they're racking up a baby count, killing babies isn't beyond their capabilities, and consequently, the idea of Satanists was quite popular in the late 20th century. But the thing you've got to ask is, do Satanists really exist? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. okay. So bear with me on this one. So there is a group known as the Church of Satan, and they are an established group, but 
actually, if you look into their stuff, it says the church does not believe in or worship a literal Satan. High priest Peter Gilmore describes its members as skeptical atheists, indicating the Hebrew root of the word Satan as opposer or one who questions, which we talked about the heart of time, mm-hmm. the accuser. Okay. Gilmore rejects the legitimacy of theistic Satanists who believe Satan to be a supernatural being of force that may be contacted or supplicated to dubbing them devil worshippers. So really what they are is they're trying to be free thinkers and they are they're atheists, okay? They're a freedom of speech group trying to provoke a reaction, which is all well and good. But if you want people to listen to you, starting off by trying to deliberately annoy them is not a good start. Yeah, I, I do see where you're coming from there because provocative terminology... The, yeah. the whole name is provocative. And, They're trying and, to provoke yeah. a reaction. Well done. You did it. Good job. So, like, imagine if you if there was a political party out there who you agreed with completely. They were progressive, mm. forward-thinking, all about social justice, etc. But they were called the We Hate Elise Party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you might... You might I, I, struggle to get on board with their policies. Do you know I, what I'm saying? I, I may take umbrage to that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somewhat. Yeah. Like, uh, actually, my wife's not that bad. You know, she's she's kind she's, of all right. She's kind of brill. Like, you yeah. should meet her. You know. <laughs> so the only people who say they are part of the Church of Satan don't actually believe in Satan. Okay. Interesting. Now, evangelicals in the Western world have always kind of, best for, for another way of putting it, embraced the idea of Satanists. And it kind of morphed into a moral panic that came to be called the Satanic Panic. Have you heard of that? I have heard of that. So, believe it or not, starting in around the early 80s, there were around 12,000 unsubstantiated claims of Satanic ritual abuse, or SRA as, it call, as it's called, okay? Okay. One of the flashpoints was the publication of a book called M- Michelle Remembers, a supposedly non-fiction book co-written by a Canadian psychiatrist called Lawrence Pazda and his patient, Michelle Smith. And it was all about, like, her... It used, like, the, the sort of memory recovery therapy. Okay. And it was... She, she would remember these oh, things about... I being abused by Satanists and sacrificing kittens and all this sort of stuff. That doesn't sound real. It doesn't sound real. It's also interesting to note that Lawrence Pazda, the the psychiatrist who wrote the book, later on married Michelle after she left her husband. So there it is. There it is. Yeah, it's there's. That's, yeah, there it is. Okay. And none of these, none of her claims were there were ever actually substantiated. None of it was was ever sort of widely sort of put into into place. You know. That that um, that, that that makes more sense. Yeah. It was widely believed there was a string of clandestine occult sex rings in like daycare centers in which children were being abused and forced to drink blood as part of a satanic ritual. The McMartin preschool trial was a daycare center. It was the center of like a uh, uh, of a sexual abuse case in the 1980s hmm. in uh, in California. Members of the McMartin family, who operated a preschool in California, were charged with hundreds of acts of sexual abuse of children in their care. Accusations were made in 1983. Arrests and the pre-trial investigation took place from 1984 to 87, and trials ran from 1987 to 1990. The case wow. lasted seven years, but resulted in no convictions, and all charges were dropped by 1990. By the case's end, it had become the longest and most expensive series of criminal trials in American history. The case was part of a daycare sex abuse hysteria, a moral panic over alleged satanic ritual abuse uh, in either the 80s or the early 90s. And Ray Bucky, who was one of the, he was the focus of 65 counts of child abuse, was either cleared or had the charges dropped. But he still spent five years in prison on remand for this stuff you know this is really tricky this because Mm -hmm. it is absolutely obvious that it should be taken seriously if there is accusations of child abuse yeah especially a child i mean i say especially child sexual abuse all abuse in fact like let's get rid of the especially completely any kind of child abuse should be treated with with a a sense of urgency Mm -hmm. and respect it's just when when you bring in the reasoning of satanism it almost sort of it makes things so much harder Mm-hmm. Because you also have to question the sanity of the people who are doing this kind of thing for one, but also as well like the legitimacy of the whole thing. Like it, it can create a, a situation where people who have been abused 
are not going to be believed if yeah. if it turns out that it's not true. But you have yeah, to also 100%. take it seriously. It's, like just, the, it's just very unfair. I think it's very the, unfair. The, the kids that made the allegations took them back as adults because they realised that they, you know, they'd said something silly. They couldn't get out of the lie. The adults wouldn't let them get out of it. So when they'd say, we believe the children, they'd say, we believe the children so long as they're telling us about the about this abuse. This yeah. is why in any kind of child safeguarding issue, you never ask any leading questions. You never say, did so-and-so touch you this way or did you know you just you make use open questions like what happened and all this sort of stuff mm. and you you make the the way it was investigated was an absolute farce from beginning to end and the preschool was closed the building dismantled and i would love to say things that are this dumb would be consigned to the slag heap history but that's not true no. the satanic panic kind of morphed into something else we're gonna we're gonna fast forward to 2016 when, you know, that good old Satanist herself, Hillary Clinton, and her emails. <laughs> I can't, oh, I can't her, yes. Them. Yeah. The personal email account of Hillary Clinton's campaign chair was hacked. And then, of course, WikiLeaks published the emails. And then this is where we get Pizzagate theory. A conspiracy theory falsely claimed <laughs> that the emails contained coded messages that connected several high-ranking Democratic Party officials and U.S. restaurants with an alleged human trafficking and child sex ring. One of the establishments involved was the... Co- or allegedly involved was the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C. Oh, give me a break. And the harassment that came from that would be would be enough, would be bad enough, except for on December 4th, 2016... Edgar Madison Welsh, a 28-year-old man from Salisbury, North Carolina, arrived at Comet Ping Pong and fired three shots from an AR-15-style rifle that struck the restaurant's walls, a desk, and a door. Welsh surrendered after the officers surrounded the restaurant and was arrested and no one was injured, and Welsh was sentenced to four years in prison. Now, Welsh believed that the Comet restaurant was harbouring child sex slaves and that he wanted to see it for himself if they were there. Oh, so well, you go fire at, fire at it with an AR-15. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Well mm-hmm. done, Mr. Welsh. Uh, yeah. You've won logic. Yeah. Welch later said that he regretted how he handled the situation, but did not... (laughs) No crap. Yeah. But did not dismiss the conspiracy theory. Some conspiracy theorists speculated that the shooting was a staged attempt to discredit their investigations, (laughs) because of course they did. So nowadays, the QAnon conspiracy theorists use this kind of language we would associate with the satanic panic. This idea that the people who oppose you aren't just your opposition, but they are pure evil. It's like, an easy this... target, isn't it, in terms of blame, it feels like. Yeah, and I would love to say that this kind of nonsense was reserved only for the Americans. But but we've got to deal with this crap in our own backyard as well. In November 2020, I don't know if you know about this, six people were charged after a child was abducted at knife point in Gerwin, the very village Gerwin. in Anglesey I grew up in. I kid you not. This kid was abducted from his foster mother at knife point and driven 200 miles away before being caught by the police. So the, the de facto leader of this group was a guy called Wilfred Wong, who believed that Anglesey social services had been infiltrated by Satanists. And this group were trying to save the child. Right. Well, that's just disappointing, to mm. say the least. So you might think there are Satanists going around, but you're still the guy pointing knives at people. Do you know what I'm saying? This is it, isn't it? There's got to be something that kicks in that just goes, ah, wait a minute, this doesn't abide by the laws of common sense. Do you know what I mean? it's, It's very frustrating. So this begs the question, why is the idea of Satanism so prevalent? Well, firstly, the idea of organised child abuse is an emotive one. Nobody likes the idea of their child being abused, and just the thought of it makes you take crazy pills. Yeah, if if I if I found out Astrid had been abused in any kind of way, I don't know how I'd react, but I know it'd be badly. Yeah, yeah. your first response is violence, is, is the thing you think of. But, mm. you know, first of all, you know, you don't know if the allegations are true, you don't know if the allegations are false, and also, you being in prison doesn't help Astrid anymore, do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly, like, I, there has to be a degree of rationalisation, because you getting your revenge as a father, or as a, or as a parent, because, you know, a mum can feel the same way yeah, too, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. It, it's it's just superfluous to the needs of your child, at the yeah. end day, especially when they're a lot younger, not having that, that parental figure is, well it's just always damaging in some way or another. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the idea that there's something convenient about framing your cause, whatever it is, as fighting against an explicitly evil group of people. 
And it's even more useful if that group can't actually stand up and advocate for itself because that group doesn't, you know, exist. Yeah. And it also means that people don't have to ask the difficult questions about who the real abusers are. We hate to think that anyone we love is capable of doing something really evil. And the sheer amount of, of cognitive dissonance that it can create is absolutely overwhelming. So what drives me nuts is that Satanists... I, I'm not saying there are not some mentally p ill people out there who think of themselves as Satanists. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to include kind of like heavy metal bands or teenagers who are just trying to like annoy their parents because those guys are just doing it to provoke a reaction and they that doesn't count. But I'm saying this level of organization that people are talking about, if that was true, you can't hide a conspiracy for very long we would have heard about it by now. If you think about all the scandals that have come out of Downing Street recently, yeah. that is some of the most powerful people. And if they can't keep these secrets when they've got literally police at the gate stopping people from getting in or out, then how are these other sort of conspiracies going on and we're not hearing about it? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, you would have to be of a kind of human-based power that's just on an unprecedented level that we've never seen before. And yeah. It's only I, I do believe that there is only so powerful someone can get. Yeah. So I'm not saying there isn't uh, child abuse that happens. I'm not saying that powerful people have not abused children in, in the past or anything like that. What yeah, I'm saying is, are they Satanists? Probably not, because we would have some proof by now, is what I'm saying. And yeah. And also, Jesus didn't focus on Satanists. Jesus wasn't thinking, oh, what then Satan is up to now. Jesus was so busy trying to tell you that you had to change your life and follow him. He wasn't saying, oh, look out for those guys over there. There'll be some real trouble for you. So if he's not going to worry about them, then I'm not going to worry about them. So that wraps up our Finding the Faith in the film. We are definitely not going to talk about this kind of nonsense ever again. I feel yeah. like I've... I put the lid on this one. I'm quite happy to, to sort of keep it <laughs> firmly closed. We have some reviews, believe it oh, or not. Oh, yeah. Yeah, boy. So uh, JT220 uh, says, really enjoyed the detailed long-form dive into film. Uh, great depth and detailed knowledge of film and insight. Love the show. Could easily be twice as long and I'd enjoy it even more. Oh, Please yeah. do more. Please do more seasons. It must take ages to research and prepare such a professionally produced podcast. JT, you have no idea. J <laughs> JT, mate, I, I appreciate you. Thank you for seeing us. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Awesome. That wraps up for this episode. Our next episode will be Constantine. I don't know if this is the right question, but Phil, have you had a good time? Um... <laughs> I've had a time. I've had a time. I've had a, events, had a time. Events have transpired in yeah. a predominantly chronological fashion. Yeah. Sentences were said and discussions were had. I feel enriched. That'll do me fine. Cool. If you want to know more about this stuff, I would highly recommend uh, the You're Wrong About podcast uh, with Sarah Marshall or read anything upon Sarah Marshall because she was my primary source for a lot of this uh, stuff to do with the satanic panic. Awesome. And uh, yeah, just some really interesting stuff out there. All right, guys, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. God in Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh. And our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Waffle editing by Natalie Minica. And fact checking by Aidan Jones. Gordon Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case, tell Phil by summoning a hellhound to your side. Teach you to obey your every command through an elaborate obedience training. Then secure your review in a little case around its neck and send it straight to Phil. He'll be so happy to receive it.